Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey, welcome to a new week, Solar Warrior. Here we go. This is Two for Tuesday. Whether that's a tactical Tuesday or just content from one of our many live events like SPI Podcast Lounge, this is going to be a short form conversation typically with subject matter experts designed to give you the practical tools, tips, and advice for building your solar business or career and grow with us here on Suncast as I know you will. I'm so glad that you've decided to join us again and level up your game. Remember, you can always find the resources and learn more about today's guests and recommendations in the blog at mysuncast.com. So get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior. Here we go with another powerful conversation on Suncast. Today, we're going to focus on solar project finance and acquisitions with a guy who has quite a bit of experience about this specific topic. Jesse Grossman is CEO and founder of Soltage. Soltage is a developer in the solar industry. Independent renewable power producer is probably a more all-encompassing term, looking at financing and operating distributed utility assets often getting into as uh, as the industry explodes battery storage projects and Jesse's been at this game since 2005 he's directed over 600 million dollars in solar investment assets through Soltage and currently owns and manages a portfolio of over 300 megawatts across 14 states it is my sincere and honest pleasure to welcome Jesse to the show Jesse thanks for joining us here on Suncast Live Great, Nico. Great to be here. Thank you very much for having me. Let's jump into it, Jesse, because I'm really curious to find out a bit more about how Soltage, as one of the leading developers in the United States, is seeing the the, the world, like I said, post, uh, post-COVID, as we hope uh, emerges soon. Well, Jesse, as we get started here, why don't you tell us a bit about Soltage? You know, I've certainly propped you up as one of the leading developers and, and asset owners. You guys have been around since 2005. What's the world look like for Soltage with regard to development, asset ownership, and management? Yeah, yeah. Well, thanks. Uh, good, to, good to be here. Great question to start things off. So I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about Soltage's business and, and what we do. So we're an experience that you use the terminology exactly as we do, independent renewable power producer. We were founded in 2005, and we've been doing nothing but, which means we really like owning renewable assets in the clean tech space. So we develop assets, we finance assets, and then we operate distributed utility solar, and now solar plus storage and standalone storage projects in the U.S., um, you know, we've developed more than 100 solar projects across the U.S. and are currently managing over 300 megawatts across 14 states. So that's a pretty decent portfolio. But as we're only at, you know, 4% penetration of solar in the U.S., we think it's a good start. In up markets and down markets, uh, we're going to continue to need renewable energy. And at its core, Soltage is a stable, consistent, established 
developments and capital provider to the industry. And we really find ourselves a strong partner to small and medium-sized developers who are also working in this space. We got a long-term track record for success, and we know how to navigate the myriad regulatory, financial, and development risks to get solar assets developed, financed, and, uh, and over, the, over the finish line. You know, in terms of COVID, it's relatively, uh, you know, the same strategy, but just, uh, just continuing with a little bit more uh, sand in the economic years right now. Well, before we jump into kind of how things are moving along present day, which I know a lot of folks are interested to hear, uh, you mentioned a, a key component here with hundreds of projects and many megawatts under management. There are a couple of things that I think I'd like to sort of clarify or disintermediate in terms of terminology to make mm -hmm. sure that someone who's watching can really understand Am I a good fit for how this conversation fits for my business? Should I reach out to someone like Soltage? You mentioned medium to small-sized developers. I'd like to actually ask sort of a two-part question. What is small to medium from a developer perspective? And then from a market perspective, you know, we've got Resi, commercial, CNI, and utility. That spectrum of projects can encompass anything from you know two mega two kilowatts on resi to 200 megawatts and up on utility is there a space that you play in there that dictates what small and medium developers look like for you yeah yeah i yeah, know great great set of questions to bring up and this is a poorly defined part of the market i'll take your easy question first which is you know what do i mean about small and medium-sized developers you know, development and a lot of the developers we work with are found in areas where, you know, there's not an active solar market yet. Um, you know, it's folks on the ground that might have done some adjacent development work, maybe in real estate or wind or biomass. That they, you know, solar's taking off here. We're seeing utilities looking for solar. We're seeing uh, landowners that are putting their uh, real estate assets on the market looking for for solar development there. And so that could be a two-person shop, a 10-person shop, a 20-person shop. And that's kind of what I think about when I think of small to medium-sized developers. And they could be doing gear play solar and renewables, or they could be doing you know renewables as one part of their development suite, where they're also doing some maybe low-income housing development or some commercial development at the same time. So that's part one of your two-part question. You know, the other the other point is uh, is on you know how do we define this? Sector? And as this market has been growing and evolving very fast, you know, it's been a constant race to try to keep up from a definition and terminology perspective with uh, the the speed of innovation on the development side. So I think that's really driven by how creative we've been in this space to try to um, satisfy the customer demand for solar. So you know. What I consider um, the CNI space or the distributed utility space is now more of an exclusive definition than an inclusive definition, and it's a real mashup of a number of things. So you've got, you know, definite, the historical definition was residential. I think we all can understand what that is. And then you've got large-scale utility, you know, where you're definitely connecting to the transmission lines, you know, multiple hundred megawatts and uh, thousands of acres on a, on a particular asset. You know, what we've seen, um, driven largely by regulatory state policy, is an expansion of opportunities for the 2 to 20 megawatt developments to happen, um, largely connected to distribution. We're doing some transmission level uh, voltage connection, but it's largely distribution line connection. And the sales and buy mechanisms for how that power is sold is also pretty varied. 
you got purple markets, you got community solar markets, you got contract for difference um, and financial swaps that all are included in, in that uh, in that distributed utility. And it's also portfolio driven as well. A lot of folks forget that when companies like Soltage look at assets, you may not necessarily be talking about a five megawatt deal per se on one plot of land. It could be uh, five uh, hundred megawatt deals, or excuse me, five ten megawatt deals, or five one hundred kilowatt deals. But the the portfolio aspect typically driven by retail customers like the Krogers and WalMarts and Walgreens of the world have a big impact on and a driver of that sort of middle market. I think it's funny when I was selling trackers to utilities, I engage a lot with Nextera. Nextera has a whole division dedicated to distributed generation, which for them is anything 20 megawatts and under. Um, <laughs> and when, when I started in the game back at the same time you did, 20 megawatts is anything but distributed generation. So I think having that clarification on terminology is important. I know that in a utility space, distributed generation has a completely different focus. Um, and it's more of a, con- of a question of, is it front of the meter or behind the meter? We're not going to get into all the wonky uh, technical aspects today, but I did want to set the stage because it's important when we talk about developers in this context and we talk about acquiring projects and how finance is, is, is being structured or where it's going, it's important to be able to state up front, this is probably a useful conversation for you if you're developing retail uh, locations and portfolios, if you're developing one-off uh, or, or uh, sort of multi-site regional projects in the 1 to 20 megawatt range, uh, this is going to be a hugely valuable conversation for you. If you're a, re- a residential installer thinking about getting into CNI because you've got an exciting market like Illinois or a community solar market or a mush market, this is going to be an interesting conversation for you. Soltage is in a unique position here. While uh, a lot of the industry is trying to figure out where to deploy their capital, but also trying to figure out how to engage with their teams, you sort of sit a different place in the market. So I'm curious, how has business changed, if it has, for you since the start of the pandemic, the COVID-19 crisis? Yeah, 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 I know. Um, and it's, you know, it's it's obviously been a very tough time for the entire country and the entire industry. And I think it's been a, a, a real um, heartening point that, you know, the renewables part of the power sector in particular has continued to, to move forward as we have. And, and, you know, we certainly, I think, are a bright and shining spot of the economy, you know, un, kind of intended as we're moving forward. We operate in, a, in an industry in a market where we've got locations uh, for construction and development where social distancing, by and large, can be observed. Solar energy construction has been deemed, with the exception of New York State for a period of time, an essential service. And the local AHJs are all allowing for you know, power development and power construction to continue to move forward. For us at Soltage, you know, we really, for the last decade plus, focused on the capital side of the market as well. And so we've had a lot of dry powder on the investment side. And so we've continued to invest in development, invest with our developers, and be funding projects and, and bringing assets through construction during this time. Yeah, we When we started this, we had, uh, I think, over 100 megawatts in construction across uh, five wow. states active construction. And so we were 
actively monitoring all of those assets and making sure they were all continuing to be on a good a, a good track moving forward. On the operating asset side, yeah, we've got portfolios and a real question during a, a time of crisis and a time of pandemic is, you know, how's, how, how's portfolio uh, performance and portfolio management takes on a, on a particularly special uh, need uh, during during a time like this. You know, I've been happy to happy to review with my team that you know, with our electricity counterparties uh, that we sell to, they're predominantly off off uh, investment grade off takers. A lot of utilities in there, a lot of municipalities, and a lot of pass through entities for community solar, which kind of on a shadow credit rating do look investment grade. And that has uh, translated into stable and predictable payments from our customers on the power that we're generating. They're obviously happy to continue to see some economic benefit and long-term stability from the solar products that they're buying. So that's uh, that's been positive. I will say, you know, businesses that have a lot of exposure to residential and CNI sectors of the marketplace are probably seeing the biggest impacts right now. And certainly, if you're trying to originate new sales um, in that sector, residential and CNI, um, you know, they're certainly seeing things slow down when you're not physically able to get to a client's location or you're not physically not safe to be doing construction work on their facilities when you need to access their property and things of that nature. You know, we've been doing this a long time. We've got, you know, conservative Midwestern roots in terms of how this company was founded. And we know that there's good times and there's bad times, you know, for economic cycles and for market cycles. And so, you know, times like this continue to reinforce how important it is for us as a company and us as an industry to stay disciplined and look to strike appropriate deals that stand on their own two legs and, uh, you know, in good times and bad, um, transact fairly and appropriately, you know, across the sector. It's an interesting time, right? I was, I'm glad that you brought up the, uh, so the credit worthiness of <clears throat> municipal counterparties. Counterparty risk is one of the biggest elements of how the transactions can be sort of processed, like run through the finance side of the business. As an owner operator, it's good. To, it's really encouraging to hear that deals are still making their way through the process. I think one of the biggest concerns in the marketplace, beyond the obvious presumption that residential and CNI were going to get hit, it was a question of whether deal flow would slow down. I think one of the encouraging things is even on the resi side, we're seeing that folks have transitioned quickly to having an online based sales process and transaction business. Obvious, a lot of social distancing, both from the resi install to the utility uh, O&M side of the business have quickly been established. I wonder, was there, were, what were the conversations like among your asset management partners and among the development partners early on? How did you and your team have to engage to really assess the needs to get through this and to set the stage for what might be coming for Q3, Q4? A lot of active discussion, both, you know, on the downstream side, you know, with our internal development team and the developer partners we work with, you know, as well as sort of upstream looking at, you know, our own funds and fund management and how we were thinking about investing over the next couple of quarters, as well as uh, reaching out to some of our key partners on the tax equity and debt side. You know, on the on the development side and, and pipeline advancement side, really the focus was on 
what are the risks to continuing to be able to push development forward over the next couple of months? Um, you know, yeah. initially it was weeks and then stretched into months. And now we're, and now we're all looking at a new game plan for how we, how we develop going forward. And how do, how do we mitigate any of those risks? And, you know, that was a lot of discussions with, um, you know, the permitting agencies, a lot of municipalities, a lot of customers, you know, really making sure everybody was uh, in the 20th century and, and able to do some video chats for permitting, with things of that nature. In terms of equipment, we had to quickly assess whether or not supply chains and shipping routes were going to be impacted. Right. And that had some knock-on effects for ITC state harboring and timelines uh, under which equipment needed to, to land on the shores of the U.S., which has subsequently been relaxed by some IRS rulings, which were good to see. But that was a, an immediate point of focus. And and by and large, everybody on the development side was interested in seeing things you know move, move ahead as fast as possible. Um, customers continued to be interested in, in getting their clean energy and, you know, from development and construction perspective, you know, as, as assets are moving along, people get paid and, uh, and everybody's looking to continue to have a decent year from a revenue perspective. Upstream on the investment side, a number of, a number of conversations uh, across a few different points. You know, first, it was very quickly established that capital was going to continue to flow into this space. You know, very different than 2008 crisis, which precipitated sort of the credit freeze between, you know, 2008 and 2010. Financial markets were still wide open. And as the Fed sort of continued to push openness through various uh, fiscal and monetary policies, you know, folks were looking to, to get capital out. And there was really a flight to quality and continues to be a flight to quality of which uh, solar for, you know, not only its uh, stability um, of, of revenues and predictable yield and not being correlated to the financial markets, but also for the big ESG investment push, which is happening right now. Um, this was this was an area where 2020 was already going to see and was seeing a wall of money coming. And and that you know didn't didn't really change across that's a sponsor equity and debt. Uh, we can go into, you know, they're not Folks are folks are being a little bit more careful with who they're working with and, and not striking out a lot of new relationships. But uh, but that capital is still flowing. Well, yeah, I want to actually touch on on that a minute, and we'll circle back around to to tax equity. I think you and I both share the idea that partnerships are really uh, important in this industry. As a buyer, someone who is partnering with developers to bring those assets into operation, there are a lot of things that you have to consider, a lot of things that developers have to consider in picking the right partners. So mm-hmm. I wanted to take a minute to foray into, you know, you we mentioned earlier that you're really focused on small to medium developers. How does a developer best position their assets to find an acquisition partner like Solsage? You're absolutely right. And we do a lot of partnership with uh, small, medium, and, and very large developers that are looking to work with us as a long-term buyer and owner of these assets because they know that, you know, based on the fact that we've been in the marketplace as long as we have, and we've transacted on as many assets as we have, and we actually have a development arm of our own, we know what good looks like and we know how to make those decisions uh, through the development process. And that's exactly why folks look to partner with us. You know, positioning is... Partially about timing and partially about the market that's being accessed. 
in terms of timing, we always prefer, and, uh, and I think our partners have found over time this makes a lot of sense, is to start working together earlier rather than later. You know, it's a relatively um, straightforward statement that if you're building an asset with a 40-year design life, where most of the assumptions are fixed up front, your financial partner is going to have certainly some preferences in terms of how various development challenges are assessed and which risks are taken, which risks are acceptable, which risks are problematic. And those go to sort of big showstopper points that are very easy to either get right or get wrong. And then they get down into a lot of nuances that can really drive additional value from a project and translate right back into the developer's pocket in additional dollars. And so, you know, you can partner with an entity early stage, mid stage and late stage. We typically think it's most valuable and most useful and most efficient to strike early and mid stage partnerships with uh, with developers. Given that it is early in the development cycle where the biggest leverage and benefit is found, especially for someone who wants to partner with a company like Soltage that has you know, 15 years of experience bringing these projects to fruition. And the fact that we're talking about an infrastructure asset, something that has 30 plus years of life. I'd love to hear if there are any examples that you could bring to the table of a time where you had a partner where you were able to directly influence decisions in that partnership and in the way those project assets were developed, knowing ahead of time that you were going to invest in and bring those assets to the market. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and there's a number of examples, Nico, uh, that come to mind. They can range from as simple as advice in terms of talking with a client, where you know your developer is signing up their their site leases across a number of portfolios. And at one point, you know, they said, "Well, we got advice that you know a twenty year a twenty year lease with two five year extensions at at mutual option would be a, a, a fine way to go." And we know that now we're financing these assets with a 40-year design life. And having the extra 10-year of, uh, of lease term is very valuable on the back end. And that's a benefit that we can transition directly to our development partner. So it's very easy conversation to say, well, actually, here's some other, you know, take a quick look at the lease option, make a couple comments, and that really materially impacts the value of the asset. Interconnection is one where we always find an area, a way to add value in terms of how the assets interconnected, how it's electrically structured. And now, particularly when uh, multiple interconnections are sometimes going in on the same project to add optionality for storage, that's an area where we've invested quite heavily and an area where you know a couple tweaks early on can preserve a lot of optionality and value for a project that otherwise could have been lost. And yeah, we're happy to, to step in with developers at later stages I can think of an example last year where we stepped into a late stage development asset and, and had to restructure a couple points with a developer to you know, get to a successful close and get the asset up and constructed and invested in, uh, but always easier upfront. Hey, for my commercial solar warriors out there, do you sometimes feel like prospects are treating you like a dollar per watt commodity? Instead of a race to the bottom, why not add more value to your proposals by including DemandX load flexibility software from Extensible Energy. You can use intelligent AI software to monitor solar production and shift the usage patterns of HVAC and other flexible loads. The result is increased savings on energy charges, demand charges, time of use charges, and that makes you and your proposal stand out from the crowd. 
Who doesn't want that? You can learn all about DemandX and how you can include load flexibility software as part of your proposals at extensibleenergy.com forward slash suncast. And as a bonus, you'll get free load flexibility analysis, sales training, and info on how you can even white label DemandX for your solar company. So go ahead, stand out with DemandX from Extensible Energy. This episode is also brought to you by Adani Solar USA a fully integrated renewables company from solar sale and module manufacturing to project ownership and operation. Adani has an impressive operating and contracted pipeline of over 14 gigawatts of solar energy projects and recently received the largest solar award ever of eight gigawatts. It's mind blowing. And it includes a single site project of two gigawatts, which itself is tied for the world's largest. No one knows mega scale projects like Adani. If you'd like to work with Adani, go to mysuncast.com forward slash Adani, A-D-A-N-I, and fill out the information request form, and we'll put you in touch with their local team. You know, one of the things that uh, I've seen over the years is, and, and this is pretty common even if you think about sports, the idea of pattern recognition is elemental, right? That whole 10,000 hours aspect. It's what can you do in your sleep that a new developer perhaps doesn't know that they don't know. It's one of the things I get approached uh, having 15 years in the industry. I get approached often by folks saying, hey, can you help me think about how to dispossess this asset or how to grow my portfolio? Or what do I need to think about to develop these assets? And in particular, you see this from maybe land guys coming out of real estate or telecom and they have really fundamental like good instincts but they don't have that 10,000 hours from a pattern recognition perspective you know and the scars that I'm sure you've endured where do you find that as that big brother to a lot of these transactions you add discrete value you know i think at the macro level it's the confidence that if we sign into a project or a portfolio or a strategy, we've got the know-how and the capital and the track record of getting things to the finish line. And you know, development is a bit of a, a murky process at times. Uh, we like to say internally, all good deals have three near-death experiences before <laughs> before they get there. Um, and and when we've lived that, and and so you know that's that. I think I think uh, the confidence that we have about knowing what good ultimately looks like and how to get assets there is is the is the the biggest and best benefit that we can that we can give partners and and really it's the fact that, that we're aware of the hundred different points that you've got to get right in development that allow for us to have that that confidence and um, and that marketplace. Yeah, I'm sure you have hundreds of stories, and uh, you know you've told them all over uh, over wine and cocktails. But uh, I wonder, through the many different ways that you've helped developers, if you've come to a conclusion about the right time to structure a deal in the portfolio development cycle. I find that this is one of those uncertainties that's particular to solar that doesn't necessarily translate from other kinds of development. And I'd love to hear your, your expert opinion on that. This is hard um, because development is as much an art as a science. And if it was, if it was easy, everybody would, would be doing it and everybody would be cashing out big from, you know, one development play in in one market as opposed to really 
being focused on hitting singles and doubles uh, consistently over the years. But, um, you know, in terms of timing, you know, I like to simplify development to a 10-step process. Um, and some, and once I'd say the first three big points or four big points are at least proven out from a business plan perspective, they don't have to be in place and they don't all have to be fully funded, but they need to be somewhat, you know, internally articulated, understood, and then um, a story around them is, is a good place to, to engage with a, with a group like Saltage, although we're happy to start having conversations much earlier. And a couple of the fundamental things that are there are, you know, you got to have a development thesis in the market. It's to say, if I, I, I think that if I go through these 10 steps, I will come out the other side and have a, a valuable solar project, which is ready for institutional investment. Mm. And then sort of driving right below that, it's about site control. It's about interconnection. It's about an idea of where revenue is going to come from through PPA or contract for differences or financial swap. And it's about really under, having some fundamental understanding of the permitting pathway. And am I going to be able, you know, in this region to get through permitting? And I feel once there's a, a fair story around those four points, is a really good time to, to talk with, uh, with, uh, with, the, with an entity like Soltage that is interested in engaging. And mind you, you know, once that idea is in place, you're still eight to 24 months out from being able to build an asset. But I think that's, in my opinion, the sweet spot for when to start engaging with a development, with a, a, a capital partner like Soldier. Yeah, I've heard so many folks trying to get into the game who their intent is to have an annuity and uh, they want to own that asset only to find, as you mentioned, that there are three minimum near-death experiences and you really have to have the capital partner behind you or the own internal stability to endure the what we proverbially call the solar coaster. Uh, and I see so, so many folks holding out to try and sell later to, to juice that return on the transaction when, frankly, if they'd engaged a soltage in their process, not only would they sell more efficiently, but they would be able to just simply process more transactions. The templates, the access to capital, the, the efficiency that a partner like Soltage can bring to the table, it really gives a, you know, it's like adding racing fuel instead of 87 octane to uh, an otherwise stable vehicle you know i wonder jesse does an economic downturn impact project development and project finance how do recessions change the outlook for things like tax equity i mean we're going into uh we're coming off of the best bull market that you and i have personally experienced and we both went through the 2008 recession uh what what should folks be really thinking about or considering from a development perspective with regards to market outlook recession uh proofing their business and even things like tax equity good very good point i think right now is the time to um you know batten the hatches and strap down everything you have because, you know, the economic indicators are such that it's, it's going to be rocky for a couple of years. Seven years is historically the amount of time for, for positive markets before there's some correction. We were, what, 12, 13 years in? So I, I don't think this is anything, you know, more than something was going to come along cyclically to, uh, to change the party for a period of time. Right. I think 
you know, the fundamentals of infrastructure investments and electricity provision are not changing. In fact, the drivers are positive. And so I think uh, from a macro perspective, there will continue to be really good non-intermediatable non and non-outsourceable opportunities for good developments and investment in the U.S., but there is going to be just a whole lot more sand in the economic gearbox for the next yeah. couple of years. And that's going to trickle down, you know, specifically to your question, you know, there was a lot of development loans that were available. Um, and that, the advent to that, you know, really took off around four or five years ago. And uh, that's about as risky capital as you can put into a place, uh, into, into the market, um, you know. Shops were putting down money for developers to put you know, interconnection agreements in, sign lease options, things like that. Um, I suspect a lot of that will will dry up um, as folks dial back uh, risk risk tolerances and preferences, and there's liquidity in the system. Sponsor equity uh, is a big component, and there are a lot of pension funds, um, insurance companies, uh, corporates, etc. Those that still have solid economic footing are going to continue to be shifting their investment into this space. And so I think that's a real positive. And um, they're going to be looking for market rates of return. And, you know, as uh, treasuries are, are down near zero, you know, the yields that you can get off of solar investments continue to look very attractive. Tax equity, uh, and I'm glad you brought that up, but that's, you know, getting phased down. We're in the 26% uh, environment. Uh, next, it'll drop down for the next uh, couple of years before it goes down to its 10% uh, baseline, absent any uh, corrective policies. That's an area where, where we're seeing pullback from medium and even some larger players that were associated with uh, the insurance space. Uh, insurance company is going to get hit pretty hard. And any of the CNI uh, corporates that um, have a lot of exposure to, to the retail sector. Those groups are either taking a pause as they're not sure what their 2020 profit levels are going to be or saying they're, they're exiting the market for a period of time. I think all of this gets back to, you know, one of the, the, the points we were making earlier around partnership. You know, we were coming at it from a how do you de-risk development aspect. But I think on the other side is how do you ensure that there is a, a stable investor who's on the other side of the, of the project that you're building? such that, you know, when you're ready for construction, you know that there's a seamless uh, home for that and you're not going to be out shopping that in a potentially adverse marketplace. Yeah, I think that's so key. And, uh, you know, we've both seen it over the years. Folks who seem cavalier uh, about their the, the solidity, if you will, of their development portfolio only to find themselves in essentially a fire sale because mm -hmm. the dynamic changes in the market by the time they finally get that last interconnection or right of way for their project. Yeah. I mean, I, I just, I wish I had, uh, I wish I had a dollar for every time someone's called me and said the, the economic situation has changed and we need recommendations for buyers. We talked a bit about, uh, you know, you, we've both in the, been in the industry for a while, and one of the things that I admire about the work that you guys have accomplished is that you're not a Johnny-come-lately-to-the-market. You established this company 15 years ago, endured what till now has been the greatest, greatest uh, economic recession or downturn of our lives. Are there any takeaways that might inform 
your approach to getting through this recession that you might look back from 10 years ago and say, well, here are things that we need to not forget if we look, if hindsight truly is 2020. To one of your earlier points about, you know, development hubris, this market disincents that pretty, uh, pretty regularly. And, and, you know, we tell the team, I tell the team all the time and we wake up every morning, uh, being very humble because you never know what's going to happen. And I think humility is really an important part of uh, success and long-term success in this industry and making sure you're looking at, uh, at the downside as well as the potential upside. You know, and that's that's been kind of our motto from, from T0. I think it's one of the reasons why we've survived and uh, thrived as long as we have. You know, 2008 and 2010, 2011, I hope we're not going to see anything like that again. Because, you know, that was a crisis that had its roots in the financial markets, and they were just gone. So it would be a very different conversation you know, 16 weeks into that crisis as opposed to one which has its roots in, 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 in a biological nature and something which we need to understand and avoid and treat as opposed to some internal systemic financial issues. For us, we, in 2008, we were doing a, a large capital raise. And we'd started that in uh, 2007 to take on a, a significant minority partner for Soltage. And, uh, and we had found that partner right before the crisis hit. And, you know, sometimes better, uh, better to be lucky than plan things perfectly. But right. we, ended up, yeah, <laughs> we ended up taking a large uh, uh, energy company as a, as a minority partner, a group out of Omaha, Nebraska called Tenasca energy yeah. and just gr great partner um, and we took that partnership at the right time and those resources allowed for us to weather 2009 2010 continue to execute and then we were ready to be a stronger more seasoned business in 2011 as the, as the capital market started opening up again and so that's something which I've reflected on uh, relatively frequently uh, during the uh, during the last you know three four months here, and so thanks for thanks for bringing that up. That was, uh, <laughs> it was something something enjoyable to reflect back on. Indeed, you know, and for those who perhaps are unfamiliar, I mean. You may as well be saying that you took an investment from Berkshire and, and Buffett himself in the in the recession because Tenasca is just one of those Omaha-based companies that has been around forever. And to have them invest in your company tells me two things. One, you had a really sound business proposition. And two, you are not of the ilk who, despite having been around for barely three years, would sit back and say, we're good, we've got enough capital, I don't really want to dilute my company. Um, I've heard over and over again, recur sort of reviewing the last economic cycle to try and get insights into how folks can be responding now, is uh, especially in this environment, you have to always be thinking about your capital position and raising more money sooner than you thought you would. You know, I've, I've talked to, unfortunately, a number of startups in our business who were just ready. They were, they, they, well, they thought at least maybe in January, February, ready to close that Series A. And now, uh, you know, now their investment partners have gone cold and they're running out of capital and mm -hmm. their portfolios are sitting stagnant because they don't have the capital to invest in production or in interconnection queue uh, uh, fees, et cetera. It raises the point not only that we do anticipate the markets will go back up and the economy will improve because this isn't fundamentally rooted in a financial market crisis. 
you know, folks have to position themselves well. But we also come from deep roots in the solar industry. Some have referred to them as sort of hippie-esque, which is firmly rooted in community. And one of the things that I love about our industry is uh, sooner or later, you never say never to a partnership opportunity because sooner or later you do end up finding opportunities to work with other developers, other finance ears. Uh, so much moving around in this industry happens that you just can't afford to burn bridges, frankly. I'd love to hear from your perspective as an industry veteran. How can developers in this moment in time work together to get through this pandemic? One of the largest areas um, of continuous focus needs to be on opening up uh, state markets. And, and that really happens. You know, as, as we know, we've got one country and 50 different markets. And then there's sub-markets within those uh, jurisdictions. And so we really look at, you know, our business model. We're 100% domestic focused and we're continuing to just be domestic focused. But with 50 state markets, we've got more than enough opportunities. But there's a number of markets which, you know, are still very cold from a solar perspective and have not opened up. And to the extent that developers can continue to, to band together and um, push state markets because locals have the influence. Everything in, in this space and, and the game of development really is a local play. Um, so I think uh, developers continuing to work at local levels to ensure the continuity of their markets is one of the strongest areas uh, where folks can, can be working together and continuing to achieve meaningful impacts. Um, we need to see three, four, five new markets open in 2021 and 2022 to continue to support the pace of development that this country needs and meet the needs of the customers. And, uh, and that's an area where everybody can have a daily impact. If you'd be so bold as to pull back the curtain a bit, what are some of the markets that you're most interested in? This is uh, a market that you know, folks have been looking at for you know 12 months or so, but, uh, but uh, Maine has been an interesting one as a, as a new state where folks have been developing into Virginia's passed uh, some pretty interesting uh, facultative regulations for new solar development, not on the utility scale side that was seen over the last three or four years, but on the um, more community solar side, you know, two to five megawatt side, similar to what we've seen in other Southeast markets. Um, I'm hearing some interesting rumblings on Arizona and Nevada, mm -hmm. finally putting some meat onto the bones of, of their market for distributed utility uh, assets. And then some of the other Midwest states uh, really do need to pick up the ball. Uh, we saw really a lot of movements in Illinois, but ultimately it was a conscripted program that only let uh, a certain amount of solar projects through. They only had funding for a couple hundred megawatts. We need to see another another program enabled there, and then uh, but other states, um, Iowa, Wisconsin, Michigan, um, have all been looking at what uh, Illinois did, the benefits that were brought to the ratepayers, and um, and the construction jobs that were added, and uh, and there's there's a lot of conversations about how how that gets replicated. These programs and program development is a multi-year effort on the grassroots. And it's important, you know, every state in the U.S. at this point can and should have a viable, long-term, replicable, sustainable solar program. And we'll get there over the next decade. All right, that's a wrap on today's conversation, Solar Warriors. But I do hope that you'll check out 
the other Two for Tuesday episodes and let me know what you think of these shorter format discussions. You want more like this? You can find more than 200 episodes, resources, highlights from the discussions, along with social media links to each guest episode, book recommendations, and so much more over on the blog at mysuncast.com. And that's also where you'll find other ways to engage with the Suncast tribe, like subscribing to our weekly emails, or even joining the exclusive inner circle we affectionately refer to as the Guild. If you're on Spotify or iTunes, I so appreciate your rating and review so that others can also find Suncast more easily. A special thank you to our sponsors who help make this podcast possible. You can learn more about them at mysuncast.com forward slash sponsor. Follow the links there for any offers we've discussed here today. Remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle.